a new song. Well, today we're going to unpack Psalm 40 and its fulfillment in John chapter 1. It is a thousand-year journey this morning from King David writing this amazing song to John's gospel, to Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we're going to do it in 15 minutes or less. Um, I always under exaggerate. Maybe it'll be a bit longer than that because, because, because there is so much to say about this. All right, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the great reformer, the, the father of the Christian Reformation. He found himself dressed as the monkey was, shaved head, bare knees, creeping up the marble steps, no hands, of the so-called sacred stairs in Rome. The sacred stairs, or Scala Sancta, is, supposed to, is supposedly the same staircase moved from Jerusalem to Rome that Jesus himself walked down after being sentenced to death by Pilate. On these stairs, the penitent or the sorrowful sinner was taught and believed that for each of the steps climbed, the 25, I might add, on naked knees, each step climb would absolve them of a year's worth of sin. Sadly, at best, this is a deception. And at the worst, it's a cruel joke of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was halfway up this staircase when our Martin, on bloodied knees, one could imagine, it was in this moment that he heard the voice of God speaking to his troubled soul. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And as we know, faith alone became his story. Faith alone, so clearly articulated in the scriptures, became his story. Faith alone is launched the Reformation as Martin, obedient to the heavenly voice, saw the error of trying to earn one's own salvation by pains and works. And he left the city in disgust, proceeding home to nail his thesis to the church door at Wittenberg and to kindle the fire of the glorious Reformation. Now, salvation by works is not just an error of the Roman Catholic Church, an error they do continue to carry on to this day, but this idea of, of that we can earn God's favour, that we can earn our own way into heaven, it is an idea that is shared by almost every religion, ideology and belief system across the world across time. Yet this is not how it's supposed to be. It's never how it was supposed to be. To do this turns God into a transaction, a God who we can move and shift with our own works and abilities. But it's more than this. It was never God's plan that we would be forced, left, to lift ourselves up with our own strength, to lift ourselves up from the slimy pit of mud and mire that is the world of wars and hate and sin in which we live. Yes, the world is full of hate. Turn the news on. Have a look at an unfiltered social media feed. Post anything meaningful online and you will soon find this out. And on a side note, a tangent you know I love to take occasionally. I was listening to a secular study just recently that was studying organizations, diversity in organizations in the UK. 
Lo and behold, they discovered that the church was the most diverse organization in the country. Surprised, not really. If we truly were the haters that the world claims that we are, how could we be the most diverse organization in the world? I digress. Today we're talking about Psalm 40, a psalm that comes later in King David's life, likely after he has realized the extent of his own sinfulness, his need for salvation, and it's expressed in the form of a song. Psalm 40 is a song. We're going to pray. We're going to unpack the psalm. Hopefully we're going to land in John's Gospel, chapter 1. It's my prayer that through this, that each of us would have a new song in our hearts. Some new way to relate to Jesus and the world in which we live. All of it pointing to this lamb who was slain. Let me pray, Lord. We thank you for your great love. We thank you that the whole Bible points towards your love. That cross where Jesus died so we could be with you. Amen. Oh, what comes before Psalm 40? Come on, what comes before Psalm 40? 39, thank you. Give him a high five. 37, 38, and 39. All of these Psalms speak more clearly to David's trouble, and all of it feeds into Psalm 40. Now, what is his trouble? I've alluded to it already. What is the trouble that this king of a nation, right? This powerful, this, <laughs> their greatest, their most successful, revered king, really. What, what's the trouble that this king is prepared to admit so clearly, so humbly, Karen, perfect? It's sin. It is sin. David is admitting that he is a sinner. Which sin? Who knows? I mean, it could be the sin from his younger years when he betrayed his mate so he would be killed in the battle and took his wife. That could be what it's about. And how do we know it's about sin? Well, we go back a couple of Psalms. Psalm 38, he writes this. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. If you've never felt like that about sin, then you're not trying very hard. Verse 39, he writes, save me from... All my transgressions. And if you're an advertiser, then that's how you advertise to people. Claim your product's going to save them from something. And here in Psalm 40, my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. These words are of someone who is poor in spirit. And to this he responds in Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. This is not a moment's thing. This is drawn out. This is time tested. This is not a moment of a mountaintop or a valley. This is a major reflection on a life lived not entirely for God. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. Well, fair enough. Boo-hoo. I mean, who cares? We all go through stuff, yeah? What's David really on about? When we look at this, we can see it's much more than a, a simple thing. For this mud and mire speaks volumes. What is this mud and mire that he speaks of? It doesn't sound that bad. 
until we realize that mire is the kind of mud that claims the shoes from your feet. Has anyone stepped in that kind of mud before? Had a shoe claimed? I know I've done it. You're walking along, you're making progress, and then all of a sudden you're on one leg and there's a shoe like way back there. What do you do? You're kind of balancing, hoping someone will save you. They just laugh. Aha, ha, ha, I think the text was saying. And what do you do? You've got to be forced to put your sock in the mud, aren't you? You're forced to retrieve your shoe. <laughs> it's funny, at least for those looking on. This is the metaphor. This is the imagery of sin that David is feeling impressed upon himself. This is the imagery of sin that's grabbed hold of us. He wants us to understand. To this he says, he, that's the Lord. He, that's Yahweh, the one true God. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. So it wasn't the friends who were laughing at him stuck in the mud on one foot. It was God who put a rock for him to rest on. And it's in this moment the one realizes that this song, this psalm is a turning point in David's story. In fact, it's one of hope. It's a song of forgiveness, of restoration. Look at what he writes next in verse 3. He The Lord again, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Do we notice that he's used two different words for God? The first was was translated as Lord in capital letters, if you had a Bible in front of you, and, and that's the pronoun of he that's carried on for us English readers. So he, the Lord in capital letters, and then a hymn of praise to our God. Lord is Yahweh in the scriptures. Lord is the personal name for God. It's what the Hebrews would would use when they're referring to the personal actions of God. It's kind of like the Jesus God. But I couldn't find any theologians who said that, so I'm probably wrong. No, I'm kidding. I was taught at college, if you've come up with something new, you've probably got it wrong. But it seems to fit though, doesn't it? It's kind of like the Jesus God, but before they knew Jesus, because Jesus was always present. And the second translated as simply God in our English Bibles is actually Elohim. It's Elohim. It's the, it's the name they use for God when they're talking about his authority, his, his, his power over all creation, which means that David is actually saying this. God's personal action of saving him from the mud and the mire, okay, the sin that's grabbed hold and it's pulling him down, this personal action of God putting a rock under his foot, it enabled David to sing praises to the same God for everything in his life, in all creation. This one saving act, it opened his eyes to God's presence throughout his entire life. I know when I come to faith in Jesus, this is exactly how I felt. I was able to look back and see all the things that God had been doing in order to lead me to that moment. And I know this is the story of many others as well. But why the singing? Because singing matters. Now, I have been at a conference this past week. And what kept me up at night... I couldn't sleep after each of these days. 
they were big days. Like, oh, we were exhausted, you know. I'm getting up at 6.30, waiting for my wife to make me a coffee. Bless her. She did too, I must admit. She brought me a coffee every morning. She was so wonderful. And, you know, so I'm waiting there, and I get the kids out of bed. You know, we kind of do all over it. This is like 6.30 in the morning. The conference has a bit of a break at lunch. I'd get a nap, maybe. And then it has a night session as well. We finish about 9, so I'm back, back at back at the caravan about 10 p.m. odd. It was exhausting, but I couldn't sleep. I just lay there awake. And, you know, all I could... I mean, what was keeping me awake? It wasn't the preaching. It was fantastic. So wonderful to hear God's word unpacked by a world-class speaker. We've all got to do these things at least once a year. And it wasn't that. That didn't keep me awake at night, as good as it was. Great conversations. Often conversations keep me awake because I'm an extrovert, so that kind of gives me energy. But no... Wasn't that? Wasn't the prayers? The thing that kept me up at night were the songs, round and round and round and round and round. <laughs> they just wouldn't stop. Drove me nuts on repeat. Singing's powerful. It's powerful. In the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah the prophet, the prophetic knowledge of a future salvation for his people is pictured as God singing over them. It's God singing over his people. In the book of Revelation, the the one and final task of angels is to sing praises to God for all eternity. In the Psalms, we see them lifting holy hands to God. It's a picture of whole body worship that begins with our lips. Singing's powerful, isn't it? Singing notwithstanding a disability. Singing is something that every person shares and most enjoy. Singing's universal function, singing's purpose for humanity seems to be to bring us together, to give us a language we can speak to God with. Because singing's never just about the words, is it? This is what David's doing. Verse 4, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. It's the proud who refuse to sing to God. It's the proud who laugh at others stuck in the mud, prepared to admit their sinfulness. It's the proud who look to idols. It's proud who look to false gods for salvation. Or the whole time they themselves, they're sinking. And what's worse is they rarely even realize it until it's too late. They fail to see the patterns of their pride and self-righteousness and they just keep on sinking. And likewise, no matter what we are told, bloody knees before God or making endless sacrifices... None of these transactions can result in a clear conscience. Have a look at verse 6. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. Speaking a thousand years before Jesus, it was all about sacrificing animals for God. You did not desire this, but my ears you have opened. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. The answer isn't in the proud. 
The answer isn't in the sacrifices or good works. The answer is in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, it's these words of Psalm 40. They're repeated a thousand years later in the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 10. They're repeated not to quote David, David who spoke them looking to a future. David spoke these words looking forward to a future, but they are quoted in Hebrews to quote Jesus, the Lord who said these words of himself, here I am, I have come. Yahweh has come. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. This is King David. And this is a thousand years before. And we have a king here confessing this. In verse 8, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Such words are odd. Such words are rare. Such words can only be spoken by someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. As we know, David was. For someone filled with the Spirit, the good works just flow out of them. The good works are never forced upon them. But David's not done. As he writes in verse 9, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. To do nothing, to do no works, it's to hide the saving love of God from others. To do no works, to do nothing, is to hide the Lord from others. These words from, of David are for us Christians as well, for we too are filled with the Holy Spirit, are we not? We too are commissioned to proclaim the righteousness, the law that is written on our hearts. But for David's people, this was not yet the case. So this prayer becomes incomplete. This song, this psalm, it, it, has, it turns to begging supplication with this real tone of urgency I'm sure he wants this for everyone but it almost comes across as if he's doubting that he's backslidden it's not the case though but have a look at verse 11 do not withhold your mercy from me Lord may your love and faithfulness always protect me for my for troubles without number surround me my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. I love it. I just love it. Not, not, not just the honesty. I mean, he's a powerful king. He's got no reason to do this for his people, to say these things. It's his way, right? Or the highway. He's clearly suffering. Clearly sorrowful for his sin. And it's a powerful example of someone who is poor in spirit. And what did Jesus say about the poor in spirit? They will inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
All right, I'm almost done. Let me share a story of a midlife crisis, just because everyone needs a laugh, maybe. But it is just one example of, a contemporary example of the mud and mire. It's just one example. When I was an assistant in training at my last church, some six or seven years ago now, I was in a staff meeting with the other ministers. It was a much larger church. And Chris Piggott rocks up. I don't know if you know Chris Piggott. He owned Piggott's Pharmacy, right? You've seen our church. He rocked up, brought this new person in to meet the ministers. And he proceeds to introduce us. He introduced Sam. Sam was there. Sam, he said, Sister Sam, he's our, our youth minister. Oh, yeah, how are you, Sam? And then he introduces Adam. He was the young adults minister at the time. Yes, Adam, how are you? Good to, good to meet you. Then he introduces Arthur, who was our senior minister. I'm the senior minister. Good to meet you. And then Chris pauses for a second, looks at me, and then goes, this is Michael, our middle-aged minister. It's funny. I mean, I used to joke about becoming a minister. It was my midlife crisis, right? It was either when I sold my business and I was either buy a sports car. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the right thing to do, isn't it? That's the respectable thing to do, or become an Anglican clergyman. And here we are. Seriously, though, midlife crisis really is nothing to joke about. And they often come about in one of two ways. And this illustration, partly you've got, you've got Vaughan to thank for, the main speaker at CMS Summer School, because he used a similar example, and, it, and I think it fits here. One of two ways. Keeping in mind, this can happen at any age. I think my children have midlife crises every other day. Sorry, sweetie. Can happen at any age, at any time. And there's two kind of main ways it happens. Firstly, a person gets to the middle of their life, and then it just dawns upon them, doesn't it? They haven't achieved everything they'd set out to achieve. And they've realized, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be able to achieve those things. And the gap between reality and expectations gets too wide, and there's the crash. The second type, which I think is more common for our culture, for us been so much prosperity, a person gets to the midlife and they realize, actually, you know what? I have achieved everything I set out to achieve. I've got the education, the job, the house, the car, the kids, the boat, the new kitchen, I've got it all. And then they realize, wait a second, this doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't satisfy. And what do they do about it? Sadly, more often than not, they just blow it up. They self-destruct, fall into self-loathing, self-pity, selfishness. It's my time, they say. It's my turn, they say. Not realizing that this is just another path to dissatisfaction and entrenched sin. They've looked to the world and to the proud. They've looked to the world in the hope that it would pull them out of the mud and the mire and what they should do is cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Verse 13. Be blessed. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. There's no assumption of help, is there? This is poor in spirit. God is God. God will do what God will do. He is sovereign. He is in charge. But he hears us cry. And then in verse 16. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you may those who long for your saving help always say the lord is great and then verse 17 let them realize as david does i am poor and needy 
That's the problem. That's the midlife crisis. That's the issue. I am actually poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my helper, my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Can we believe that David's able to say these words while looking forward to what we already have? He's saying this, looking forward to what we already have received in Christ. Can we believe that a thousand years later, God came as his son to deliver us from the mud and the mire? And it's hard to believe that despite of this, so many, including many Christians, they continue to look in the wrong places for their salvation and their help. And all the while, they should simply stop and look. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if your shoe is stuck back there and you're balancing on one leg, it may not be a midlife crisis. It may be the loss of a loved one. It may be a why God, why? You know, why would you let that happen, God, moment? Why, why is this going on? Why does it happen? Why do I deserve this? Or it may be none of these things. It may be something, something in here. What's the resistance? What's holding you back from giving yourself fully over to God's plan? God's good and perfect will for your life. Whatever it is, it begins with the lips. A song, a new song from the heart. And in that moment, God will put a stone beneath your feet. For he is the solid ground on which we stand. Put your trust in him. And the Lord will take away your sin. That is the promise of the cross. That is the solid ground on which we stand. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the cross. Help us to look to you in our troubles. Help us to trust you with them. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.